You are listening to the Savage Wonder Podcast. This show is a long-form one-on-one conversation with a veteran in the arts. This show is produced by Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a tax-exempt nonprofit 501c3 organization, which provides a platform for talented veterans to create compelling live theater and events. My guest this week was the one and only David Stamps. Stamps is a madman. I think that's the best way to describe him. I say that as a term of endearment, because uh, I think I've been called that once or twice. been called a lot worse, too, but that as well. Um, but David Stamps is, uh, God, what isn't he? He's a, a poet at his core, but he has you know, written plays. He's done live events, uh, you know, tried his hand at a lot of different ventures, singing, comedy, film and TV, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But David first came to my attention because his play, which you will hear a lot about in the upcoming interview, Black Bullet Dichotomy, um, he submitted it to us for our full-length playwriting competition. Did not make the top 10 for a reason that I uh, sent him his an email, but but then fortunately bumped into him at the Arts and the Armed Forces Gala this past October, and he was there, and I was able to tell him this in person. And by the way, Arts and the Armed Forces is no more, which is really too bad. Um, that was kind of out of nowhere. Um, good people, and I feel really gypped because I was just starting to get to know them, and then the organization folded, uh, and I thought they were doing pretty well, so it was, it was unfortunate. Um, but Fortunately for veterans uh, in the playwriting and theater space, you know, I hope we can pick up the uh, the banner and and hold it aloft uh, for the veteran community. They had a different mission than ours. I should say that it's not uh, apples to apples comparison, but um, I'm glad we're here to uh, you know make sure that veteran folks in the theater do have a place that they can call home. Okay. Anyway, as I was saying, bumped into David Stamps there which was very serendipitous because I want to tell him face-to-face um, about his work. And his play, I mean, it's a, it's a, he'll talk about it in the interview, but it's, it's a fucking mad, only a madman could write it. Uh, so first off, I was really interested to actually meet him because like, who the fuck is this dude? The play is, um, it's, it's a poem. It's a poem with choreography, with hip hop, with dance, singing, um, it's just, it, it, and I told him that's why it didn't make the top 10. I said, look, it's a, you know, incredible piece of work. I mean, it's a, it's a poem. Um, but I don't see this as a play. This has got to be an immersive experience. I was like, this thing should never be on a proscenium stage. This has to be an immersive art experience. And, uh, that's how that should go. So I was like, that's why I didn't make our top 10. I was like, but Hey, let me know. I said the prophetic phrase. I said, hey, keep me in the loop. Let me know how things are going with it uh, and all that. And I really think you know that's what it needs to be as an immersive art experience. Fucking stamps. Uh, every two weeks, he gave me a call. Let me know this thing, that thing with the play. And there's all great stuff. And the play's gotten nonstop good attention, um, which is great. And now, and I'm not going to spoil what he talks about on the show. But he's had some really good leads, and I'm, I'm happy for him that uh, the play is getting um, what it deserves. 
or the not play, I should say. The immersive art experience is getting what it deserves. But it's um, anyway, it's it's an intriguing piece of uh, immersive theater. And uh, and yeah, so I you know it was great that that play was doing that. Stamps is like, hey, can I come on the show? I was like, yeah, of course you can come on the show. Um, certainly fucking worth talking to. Stamps is a fucking madman, though. I mean, it, we had a great time talking. I really enjoyed it. It's, um, you know, he he left me a voice message that I didn't get to until like five minutes before we went on air, where he was asking me if he could uh, rap and sing, all that, which is fine. But I was like, oh, man, he's going to push the boundaries of this of this podcast. And he did. And that's what I expect from him. Uh, it was great. It's lively. The interviewer part of me, I have interviewing blue balls right now because Stamps did, uh, look, he holds back. I mean, you guys will see it in the interview. Um, I always ask people before we go on air, you know, hey, any left, right limits to what we want to talk about? Most people say, yeah, I'm an open book, ask away. Most people don't mean it. Um, in David's case, he, uh, you know, there was stuff he didn't want to talk about, but I didn't know that ahead of time. So (laughs) we go on air and, and he didn't want to go down some rabbit holes. And, um, you know, I've, I'd read what some of those rabbit holes were because he's done shows about some of those rabbit holes. It's out there on the internet for people that want to see it. Um, but you know, I'm not going to force him to talk about that stuff on air if he doesn't want, I think some of it, at least the stuff I was asking about when we hit a brick wall, uh, was to his credit. I think it was really interesting, noble stuff that it sounds like he did. Um, I would have liked to have known more about it, but that's why I told him he's got to drag his ass back on the show at some point. We'll, we'll talk about it. Uh, but when he's ready, you know, and I, that, that would not be cool of me to put him on the spot. Um, but, but definitely he pulled his punches about some of, uh, some of his life, but I think you guys can read between the lines. And I think the biggest thing that you should, that you take away from this episode, or at least that I did is, you know, it's not surprising. David's, David's had a hard life and he's lived hard. Yeah. Maybe that's a better way of saying it than he's had a hard life. He's lived hard. Um, and that same muscle that can lead you to a lot of bad, weird shit that like some of the stuff that he and I talk about or that he talks about. And I reference, uh, during the interview, um, some of that stuff though also is the same muscle group that allows him to do really creative, original stuff. So it's a little bit of, a you know, baby in the bathwater. Uh, you don't get one without the other. And, uh, and he's certainly, you know, I think gone through a lot to curb the demons that don't help and embrace the angels that do. But whatever, I'm not his priest. I'm just saying, from my perspective, that's what it sounded like. And uh, and again, uh, next time he's on, whenever that is, uh, I'd like to have him on if the Kennedy Center thing is, uh, when that goes through, you know, we'll have him on to talk about that. Oh, did I just t- give a spoiler? Anyway, you'll, you'll hear about that on the show. Um, but he's got some great stuff going on, and I'm happy for him. Uh, all right, buckle up. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the Artistic Director of Veterans Repertory Theater, and this is The Savage Wonder of David Stamps.
David Stamps, welcome to the show, man. Hello, brother. How you doing? It's I'm good, man. I'm good. I am uh, I am wearing a cup and I am braced for impact, man. Let's fucking do this. <laughs> How are you doing? Where are you at right now? Are you at home? I, I'm at home. I'm in St. Albans, Queens, New mm-hmm. York. I know St. Albans. I used to go to church out in St. Albans. Oh, what church? It was a Christian Science Society out in St. Oh, Albans. Oh. I don't know if it's still there. Um, this was I years think, ago. But yeah. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but yeah. Uh, dude, good to see you, man. Looking good. Hey, I know I know we're going to go to... Uh, so listen, I just got your voicemail um, now because we were so slammed yesterday. We were in the reading all day. Right. I... Right. I, I what was the reading about? Oh, back in ass. What was the reading about? No, yeah, it was it was uh Deborah Yarchin's play Calm Before. <clears throat> we did an industry read of it, and that was like a whole day thing because we had the rehearsal and we were in the city. Awesome. Congratulations on that. Yeah, thanks. I mean it was it was fun, it was a blast. But um but point being like now I'm like catching up, and then I was like, Oh fuck. I got like uh voicemails and text messages that I just didn't even get to. Anyway, my point in saying all that is then I listened to it five minutes before I talk, I'm talking to you now, and I was like Oh fuck! David's gonna want to sing. He's gonna want to do this. I was like, "Let's do it, man! This is gonna be the fast road to Crazy Town, and I fucking love it." Because um, let's, t- but let's get there um in a second. Because I want I want to start with you. How did the story of David Stamp start? What were you as a kid? Where hmm. were you as a kid? Well, here here we go. You know, in the year of nineteen eighty one, mm-hmm. in the elite social circles of Manhattan. Uh-huh. Uh huh. A woman would come up to you with Republican hair and bejeweled, and she'd say to you, "Did you know that there is a six foot three football player who is like the most popular boy in town? All the girls love him. He's a football star. The the, the face." of a God and the body of Adonis. And he follows this little queen all around Flint, Michigan. Uh-huh. And then the, the little queen gets on the radio and tells stories and sings songs and is hilarious. And I was that little queen. <laughs> Why is a w- woman with Republican hair telling me this? Because it was all, it was all walks of life. It was, it was like, <laughs> Oh, it was the big thing of like millions of people listen to it. Motherfucker, I knew I wasn't gonna get a straight answer. I knew you wouldn't <laughs> just answer it. This is this is what I love about you, is what a fucking innate poet you are. That there is nothing you you will not answer, you will only answer at right angles that go through a scenic journey to get there. I fucking <laughs> love it. Okay. How was childhood for you? Were you an artist right off the bat? Did you know you were an artist? Were you a writer? Were you a singer? Were you a creator? Who were you? Uh, I used to always be in a talent shows. I would always sing. I was always uh, like in around the neighborhood. I was always writing songs and poetry and stuff. So it was like, um, and I was always doing comedy. Why? Well, well, let me start. Let me start out with a song. Let me do a song. <laughs> you just wanted to get to the song. You just trying to get to the song. I get you. I get you. Okay, so yeah, is, go. This, this yeah. is a comedy song. It's called um, uh, Love Is. Okay, I'm ready. Love is 
enough to make you come home early. Love is enough to make you stay home all night long and call that girl at three o'clock in the morning. Even though her mama told you she ain't home. You ignorant bastard, don't you call her no more. She about to get her baby's daddy to jump on you. She about to get a restraining order put on you. Love is, love is, love. Okay, how much of that is autobiographical and how much of that is was to get laughs? That was all to get laughs. It's fucking great. Was that actually what you sang as a kid or is that something you literally just came up with now? No, that, that okay. The thing is that the, the most important part of my whole thing was just being a performer, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. You know, it was always about, mm-hmm. you know, how I could have a good time, you know, how I could... uh you know how how I could create uh, uh, an environment to to shine. What did you want to do with it? Did you know, like right off the gate, out of the gate, you were like, "I want to perform no matter what," or was it like, "This is a sideline, and I don't know if it's going to go anywhere. This is just my personality. This is just who I am." You know, I would have to say it was more along the lines of um, processing, processing information. Mm-hmm. It was always about you know. How can I process this information, this data? But so let, let me tell you, let me let me start in another place now, Chris. Let me take you something. Yeah, sure. Now, um, on um on February the twenty sixth, uh, uh, at seven o'clock e- e- p.m. Eastern Standard Time, uh, uh there's going to be a reading. It's going to kick off the Frank Severa's fiftieth anniversary, uh. Uh, in association with the Billy Holiday Theater, uh, their virtual new play reading series. So the Black Bullet Dichotomy, the play that um, that got uh, that uh, the play that you read, yeah. that, you know, that got me uh, invited to be an artist in residence at the Kennedy Center, is uh, going to be read on, on that day. Okay. Well, hold on. Let's let's get to that. We're gonna have time for tons of shameless plugs at the end. I'm gonna give you a whole bunch of time because you got more shit going on than uh, anybody <laughs> I know. I, I gotta give you. I'm, I've set aside like 30 minutes for you just to plug stuff. But wait. So to talk me through the trajectory then. So <clears throat> as a kid, were you a good student? I was a very good student. You know. What did you like? Were you a math and science guy? Were you an English and history guy? Well, what I was, were your I subjects? was English. I was poetry. I was musical. Mm. You know, we, we used to sing songs in school. Mm-hmm. And in Detroit, we at one point we were mm-hmm. bust. Mm-hmm. You know, at one point I was uh, going to school at Emerson Middle School. That was right up there on Granville, over there in the northwest part of Detroit, not far from Seven Mile and Southfield, where I live. Mm-hmm. But then, uh, right around, I'd say about. 77, 78, we got bust to Holcomb. Now, Holcomb was a, a much better school that we had talent shows and 
Uh, there was uh, a really strong music department. I mean, there was like, mm. a, you know, where we, at, at Emerson, there was like a music class. Mm-hmm. But then, in, at Holcomb, there was a choir, there was a music class, there was theater, you know, there was all these different things. So yeah. when I got there, all of a sudden, you know, it became more about, you know, because my, my teacher, Miss Brooks, she, she really took a liking to me, to my voice. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we, you know, she would give me solos and stuff. It was, it was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. What did you do for shows when you were there? Did they have like a lot of school shows and talent shows and things like mm-hmm. that that you would do? We would, we would do like um, uh, Christmas programs, mm-hmm. talent shows. Mm-hmm. We would do, uh, you know, just, just different type of events throughout the year. It was a lot of creative stuff. It was, you know, it was much, um, it was very much in, encouraging the arts. That was middle school, right? That, that was, said? I would say that was elementary. Middle elementary, school, okay. For, for middle school, I went back to Emerson, which was over there right, right in my neighborhood. <clears throat> so, you know, a lot of those things weren't there. But and we still had a choir class. Right. Quarrels, ensembles, and all that. Nah. What was that like to go back from where you've been getting bused to and now go back to Emerson? Was yeah, it a we, letdown or was it like coming home again? It, I, I don't think it was either one. I think it was mm-hmm. more like, um, I guess it was more like just uh, being closer to the house, you know, not necessarily being in a foreign neighborhood while I'm at school. Mm-hmm. You know? I guess so. it was more coming home in that sense. But at the same point, it was like, um, I don't know. It was like, you know, it seemed like the education wasn't as challenging. You know, sure. The classes were bigger. Um, mm-hmm. it, was, it was a, a different element, I think. How did your parents respond to your talent? How what kind of reception did it get at home? Were they encouraging? I, Were they really excited? What was the what was the? My deal? father was very excited because my father was an actor and he always wanted to sing. Yeah. You know? So, but you know, I mean, I, I mean, he sings, but you know, like you know. right, right, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but um. Uh, he he loved the fact that I could sing. Anytime I performed, oh my god, it was uh, that was like that was a big deal for him. He really loved that. Where was he acting? Was he acting in in Detroit? What kind of stuff did he do? I think he was acting back in Mississippi. I think I don't think he moved to Detroit until okay. like, he met my mother like years later. Got you. So he had stopped acting at that point. Well, he he was still in a gospel group. Okay. All right. Was like you know, he would do like poetry pieces in the in the mystery. So I mean, I guess he was still mm-hmm. a poetry. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, in church, you know, you have a little more drama to you. <laughs> but so you were be, so you were surrounded by creativity. Yeah, well, it, yeah, in a sense, I could say that. You know, um, he wasn't necessarily displaying his creativity when I when he was raising me. That was mm-hmm. a period before he was raising us, but. Uh, I was always sort of um, listening to, my, my father was very religious, is very religious. Mm, mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay. So we didn't get to listen to the radio, like the top 40 radio. Yep. Unless he was not home. Gotcha. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was that like then for you when you're at school and you're able to take music? Did you find yourself rebelling? against that or did was it shocking to you to suddenly kind of have the leash off and now you're at school and you're kind of able to do all this other stuff what was that like what was the juxtaposition i i don't think it i think it was more like you know it was kind of like you know my father was like 
Hmm, I'd say between my, the third grade and the eighth grade, my father was going to school. He was working and going to school. So he wasn't there a lot of the time. Mm. But like, it was a lot of radio. And I, I mean, we just, <laughs> it's yeah. still a lot of radio. That, that I hear some of my friends play. It's like, wow, what is that? They're like, how do you, how do you not know that song? I'm like, well, because, you know, I didn't hear, hear, hear radio. Right. So there are some songs I still don't know, but a lot of things, you know, we listen to. But uh, then, then you could you could hear it as you were walking up the street in Detroit. You know what I'm You could hear it. Of course. Of course. You could hear yeah, it. yeah. You're going to make me love somebody else. <laughs> if you keep on. Yeah, you can hear that right as you're walking up the street. <laughs> what were you gravitating towards? What kind of music, what kind of art scene, what kind of media were you gravitating towards? Was Motown, it Motown? Motown. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. Okay. I mean, you know, and everything that went with that. I mean, that, that Motown is also for me, that's Curtis Mayfield. That's, you know, that, you know, that's the OJs. I mean, that's not all Motown, but that's the Motown sound. You know, you know what I'm saying? Were you putting pen to paper? Were you doing writing? Of any yeah, kind yeah, yeah. at that age? Yeah, I'll okay. never forget it. My father had this girlfriend. Her name was Miss Lucas, right? And I was, what, about nine years old. I had started writing, you know, writing mm-hmm. poetry. And I had just wrote this poem called People. And I, it said, some people are short. Some people are tall. Some people are big. Some people are small. And I was walking around like it was just the poem to have, you know. And so I gave it to Miss Lucas and I gave it to her to read, you know, waiting for her to say, wow, that's really good. And she said, it rhymes. what What? did i hear her right (laughs) did i hear her right she said it rhymes how how are you remembering so much it seems like you remember a lot like verbatim from those years do your words does your work stick with you on a level that you're just able to remember it like that yeah yeah i think the thing is um being a writer and and loving language Mm. so much Mm. You know, and then I believe it was Maya Angelou who said that words stick to the curtains and the drapes mm. and the wall. And so, you know, the, you know, the vernacular, you know, that you, what you're throwing around, you know, you, you are, you might, you ought to, you might, you might want to be aware of it, you know, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Feel good absolutely. About what you're sharing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What happened in high school? Where were you in high school? Were you still in, in Detroit? Did you get. I was in Brown. I was okay, in Flint. Okay. What was it like? It was. It was. It was. It was. <laughs> look, you know, look, I, I'll tell you the truth, Chris. I'll, yeah. I'll be absolutely honest with you. <clears throat> a lot of that stuff, I don't really like to go into mm-hmm. like in a major way. Mm-hmm. Like if something, like if we're talking about something and something comes up, but like to just like go right into it, like to specifically go into it. Yeah. Man, not really. <laughs> How were you as an artist then in high school? What was going uh, on with you artistically? I was doing a lot of storytelling on the radio. I had millions of listeners. So I was telling all of these stories. Where? Well, uh, me and my friend Tracy would be on the phone and I would just be like, a, a mo- the most thing I would do, I would be teaching about unconditional love. I was about 13 and I used to always be telling stories about unconditional love, trying to get my friend Tracy to try unconditional love. What does that mean? Tell me about that. What do you mean by that? Well, so I mean, like, um, uh, we we will be talking about different situations and different scenarios that were going on, you know, that that I had gone through, you know, because I had a high trauma, you know, background. Mm-hmm. So I would be talking about those things and explaining that, you know, the the thing that had worked the the best for me was always comedy, you know, uh, mm. because they were saying I was very funny. A lot of the things I would say on the radio were 
very funny. Wait, wait, wait. Back up. How are you getting on the radio? How did that happen? Because me and Tracy are on the phone and they're taping. I don't know if they're taping it or what, but it will come on the Frankie Crocker show. On the Frankie Crocker show in New York. Okay. There I go, there I go, there I go. I'll take your word for it. But how did they find out? I mean, that's the, hold on. We got we to connect these dots. How did they know about you? Did they know about you? Did they know about Tracy? How are they getting these phone calls on yeah, the there air? Was this, there was, this, there was this, this brother there named Wayne who was really well connected. He got in touch mm -hmm. with a, with a hip-hop artist. I won't say his name. But the hip-hop artist went to Frankie Crocker and said, look, we got this show we want to put on the radio. He, he comes on the phone and he talks. We're just going to take it and put it on the radio and play it every day. So what would happen was I would they would play different stories and stuff I would tell every day and more and more and more people would listen. It was How did they segment. find you though? How they because know about Wayne, you? Wayne, I'm telling you, Chris. You, you, Chris, I'm telling you, Wayne. Guy named Wayne was yeah. Okay, so Wayne was what? He was somebody you knew through high school. Yeah, How'd you know I knew in high school. Yeah. And how was he connected to the radio? Uh, he just he just knows a lot of people. He just knows a lot of people. He's a high school kid that knows a lot of people, and in yeah. New York. Yeah. He's a high school kid in, in Flint, Michigan, the new people in New York and could get you on the radio. Yeah. That's one connected fucking dude. Okay. Yeah. And how long were you on the radio for? Like a year and a half, maybe almost two years. And what, so now you're in high school. So you're thinking about, or at a place where you're probably going to start thinking about what you're going to be doing in the future. So what did this mean to you to suddenly be getting on the radio? It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun because um, uh, mm -hmm. I got to I got to try a lot of comedy. I got to you know I got to I got to do songs and mm -hmm. you know I was like you know I was teaching about unconditional love a lot. That was that's a big thing with me. That's that's what the big thing about the play is the Black Bullet Dichotomy. Mm -hmm. It's about unconditional love, spiritual alignment, and the law of attraction. Mm -hmm. So that's what I didn't know about the law of attraction at that time. But I was really talking about unconditional love. But at that time, because I was so young and because I had, you know, had such a high trauma background, it it uh it worked for a while, but then it stopped working, you know. But you know, it just stopped working. What stopped working? Unconditional love, the storytelling? No, not, no just just doing the show. The the show went off the air. The show itself or just your segment on the show? My segment on the show, not the whole show, just my segment on the show. Why did it go off the air? Why do you say it stopped working? I mean, you know, uh, I don't remember all the details of it, you know, because it was a long time ago, you know, and I couldn't really explain it all. It was it's kind of hard to go much further into it. You know what I mean? It's kind of like difficult to keep explaining it to you, like beyond this point. <clears throat> what years are we talking? Well, I don't know. Like I'm telling you, it's like difficult at this point. I want to change the subject. Okay. But what you say, you, you don't want to talk about what years you was you were on the radio that we were right, talking about. I don't about. want to talk about nothing else about that right now. No more. <clears throat> okay. So what happened then um, when high school came to an end? Then I moved to New York and I pursued my writing and my uh, singing. Okay. What did that look like when you got to New York? Where did you go? Uh, I uh, moved in with some friends and uh, I uh, started uh, singing songs. Uh, singing songs around New York, I you know sung on a couple of rap songs. Uh, <clears throat> I, I performed uh, for a while, and I moved to LA. <clears throat> okay, how long were you in New York for before you moved to LA? I don't remember. Even remember, maybe five or six years, four or five years. So, how were you making money when you were in New York? 
I was uh, working as a messenger for a while. Then I worked customer service for a while. Then I moved. And how did you feel like now that you're in New York City, you're doing your work, you're hustling, you're, you know, scrapping by, working those jobs. Did you feel like you, you were, what was the goal? Did you have a goal? Were you going, hey, I want to be on this and this show, or I want to be doing X for a career. I want to be a, a comedy writer or a stand-up comic. What was the goal for you? I, was, I wasn't it? really clear at that time. I wasn't <clears> really <throat> clear on a lot of things at that time. It was kind of like I just wanted to, um, I think at that point, you know, I was trying to recalibrate, you know. I think the thing at that point was that I knew that I could do it, but I just didn't know how to do it, you know. What was it for you? Was it I, comedy? I, well, I think it was, you know, I think at the, at the point that I decided that when I know what I wanted to do when I was younger, I was always talking about I wanted to be a playwright. That was something I wanted to do. I wanted to uh, live in the village and you know, be a working playwright. That's what, that was the thing I wanted to do at one point. Why? 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 Was, how did you get like hip to theater? Why? Why playwriting? What, where did that you come know, there, from? Well, there was a time when I was, um, there was a summer camp in Detroit that I went to where they were uh, doing comedy sketches and and uh, it was the scripts and stuff. And we did it and I had so much fun. Mm. I, I really had so much fun with that, you know. And then there was always this thing about, you know, there was church programs like where you would sing or you would do your poor. You know, there was always this opportunity to perform if that's what you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. What was Have you ever sat back and wondered what it was about playwriting specifically that turned you on? Was it hearing your words in someone else's mouth? Was it seeing people bring your work to life? Well, what was it that made that special, unique for you as opposed to you performing your own words, poetry, stand up? comedy all the stuff you uh, the other stuff you'd been doing what made playwriting unique for you in retrospect i would have to say there were certain writers who were <laughs> playwrights that i love their stuff like um a streetcar named desire you know i found out later that it was a film made from a play mm-hmm. but that particular piece of of that, it was just an amazing thing to me, just just watching that play. Like, and then like, um, uh, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? You know, mm-hmm. or the piano. Now, this is later. I learned about the piano lesson, and uh, by August Wilson, and uh, well, I raised in the sun. I loved. You know, there were just certain plays that I loved the, the structure of them. I loved the the character study. You know, that a lot of plays tended tended to do, you know, put these characters in these, you know, compromising situations and, you know, see what they would do. I love things like that. You know, that drama here, the drama. So when you're in New York City, obviously you're there in kind of the American home of theater. Did you do theater while you were in the city? Did you write any plays? Did you try to do any theater? Like what was how was that? What was that like for you? I, I don't think I ventured into theater at all the first time I was in New York. You know, I don't think I ventured into theater. The the the. Hmm. I didn't start doing theater until I came back to New York at the age of like in my forties. That's when I started okay. doing theater. Okay. So when you're in the so the first time you're in New York, you're just kind of what 
trying to basically figure out what it is you want to do, it sounds like, right? Right. What kind of media you want to get into, what kind of thing is going to be yours. What prompted the move to L.A.? It was just time to go, and I, I really wanted to try my hand at screenwriting. Mm, okay. What was it like when you got to L.A.? Now, L.A. was, you know, when I got to L.A., one of my sisters was, two of my sisters were already living in L.A., so I moved in with them. And then from there, my other sister moved in with my niece. So, and then we all kind of lived together in an apartment. So it was kind of like, I don't know, dysfunction on the West Coast. I don't know how to explain it. It was just really crazy. But uh, a lot of what happened, because all three of my sisters sing. So, you know, we were singing together and, you know, I was writing songs and I've always written songs. And um, so, you know, there were things we were doing creatively, but then I, you know, really started getting into the screenwriting. And, but I, when I started writing my screenplays, when I first started writing them, first of all, they were disjointed. I mean, I, I've been writing uh, screenplays and plays for like 30 years. So when I first started out, it was like trying to write an episode of Moesha, and it was like sure. garbage, sure. like you know, yeah, of course, oh, oh, yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, I, I was ready for my Emmy, you know, right? I, uh, right. Yeah, I was, I was ready for my Emmy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So as I began to write more and more, like maybe about the age of thirty-one, I started this. Uh, me and my girlfriend at the time, uh, we started this poetry spot called uh, Scribe and Lady Eleanor's Speakeasy. <laughs> where was this? In L- this where was in LA? In, this was in, this was in uh, the Atlas Supper Club right there at the Wiltern. Okay, God. In Wilshire. Wow. Yeah, yeah, all right. There was there used to be a place called the Atlas <clears throat> Supper Club. They had these two gold suns. So, yeah, a, a person actually, uh, Oscar, Oscar, Oscar Quesada, not Oscar Quesada, Oscar Quesada did a painting of it. But anyway, it was um uh we would have this this it was this really wonderful dining hall and like I think it was every Wednesday night we would get uh we'd have a live band and uh, uh she and I would do poetry and we'd have like comedians like uh, Michael Collier and T C Carson and Wayne Lindsay Wayne Lindsay is like a a, a really serious musician. All of these different actors and performers would get up there and do poetry, you know, it was or sing or, you know. And so um, uh, from there, I got I got my name as a a songwriter and a poet, you know. Okay. things came up. But, you know, when you're not ready, it doesn't matter what what's happening. You're not going to take advantage of it. Sure. But it was one. It was a wonderful time. And so that's what that's what led to this connection. That's that's what's going on with the play. Now I just reconnected with Wayne Lindsay. Wayne Lindsay is a musician who's uh he plays for uh mm. he play, he's played for the Oscars for the last three years. Mm-hmm. He's played for the Kennedy Center Honors for years, and uh he's playing for uh Clive Davis next month. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and so, he, he, mm. so at that point, it sounds like LA was more to your liking than New York had been. You know, I think I think I was more mature, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I can't say, you know, I could say that, you know, I could say it was New York, but I think it was really me. Mm. I was kind of like, you know, I wasn't ready to take those opportunities that were available to me because, mm-hmm. you know, there was a lot of opportunities available to me. But uh, when I got to L.A., I think I was more along the lines of wanting to step step back at first 
from the entertainment portion of it, like being the entertainer up front and becoming a writer. But then as I began to try to sell the writing, it wound up being me writing poetry in story form to show, to get people to want to read my scripts. Uh, okay. And what did that mean for you um, as a writer? Did you start to fall in love more with the poetry than your screenplays? Did you start to go, oh, this is actually more my thing? Or was it, or, or not? I think the thing that I came to understand, which made everything else work for me, is that I am a poet. Mm. I can be a poet mm. who writes poetry plays. Mm. I can be a poet who writes poetry songs. I can be a poet who writes scripts, but I am a poet. And mm -hmm. when I put everything under that umbrella, then things started to fall into place. And that kind of realization happened out there in LA? Is mm -hmm. that when you kind of started to twig to that? Yeah. How was it? What were your scripts? What was the reception your scripts were getting? Were you finding it hard to pitch your scripts? Did you find it hard to get in front of the right people? Just I, find it hard to, I found it hard to pitch. I found it hard to get in front of the right people. Then I found it hard to believe that the scripts I was giving them were garbage. Do you think they were? They were. They were. Oh, trust me, they were. <laughs> Do you still have them? Trust me, they were. <laughs> Do you still have all your work? Do you still have your old screenplays? I, I, like, I got all of it. All That's of it. fucking hilarious. When was the last time you looked at it? When was the last time you went oh back? Oh, my God. Was, it, here lately, I've been putting together projects, you know, so I can put together a list of things that I want to submit once this once this happens. Yeah. I've got maybe 16, 17 viable projects. And then all of these other elements to other stories. All this, it's, it's so exciting, you know. It's so exciting because the writing now, it's just about upgrading. It's always about, you know, because, I mean, you know, it's, it's this continuous learning process, you know. Sure, sure. So as you as you learn these new skills, then you then you add it to everything that you've been doing, that you've been working on all these years at different levels. It's just all now it's culminating into this amazing experience now, you know. So when you were in L.A., how long were you in L.A. for? 13 years. That's a pretty good run. That's a pretty nice run there. Were you enjoying the life out there? Did you like living in L.A. itself? Did you enjoy being in L.A.? You know, I think uh, being in L.A. have a love-hate relationship. Uh -huh. Because, you know, um, I got a lot of my creative chops there. In other words, I found out what worked and what didn't work. I found out how to network and, mm. and what it meant to know how to network and what it meant not to know how to network. And mm. No one tells you, but you sure find out. <laughs> and then uh, at, after, uh, after I couldn't get any, after I got traction, you know, I, it was a point in time where I was at the Lucy Florence Coffee House. Okay. Uh, at the Red Sea Poetry. And at that time, it was a uh, deep red was a poet, the the uh, premier poet at the spot, and I would perform in his poetry spot. We had this piece called Melody that got a lot of traction, you know. And then, you know, you know, things sort of didn't work all the way out. You know? What does that mean? What does that mean? And I mean, having lived in LA myself for a decade, well, I mean, what what does that mean when it when the poetry got traction out there? Because I didn't find was, a whole uh, like I'm just interested in what that trajectory looks like. When poetry okay. starts working so, out there, so um, I, I go. Uh, I'm, I'm with my sister. Uh, we're 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 hanging out in L in L A. And there's this guy comes up to us. He says, and she, he says, no, no. My sister says, this guy told me to come see this poetry, this 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 play at this coffee house. You want to come with me? 
I said, sure. So I go and I see the play. You know, it was free. It was, um, I'm trying to think who was in that play. This guy, this guy now has a has a big poetry spot now in 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 LA. Okay. But uh, so uh, I go to the play, and uh, he tells me about uh, Red Red Sea poetry. So I go to that. Now I'm a poet, you know. I, I, I'm not an acting poet, but you know, I write poetry. So then I go and I see the spot. I said, "Wow, this is cool." So then I the next I come back next week and I perform my poetry. You know. And, and, you know, before you know it, I, I'm performing like with the premier poets, you know. And at that time, with me, I'm hanging out with this guy, Deep Red. His cousin is in the industry, too. Deep Red, is, he has a cousin that's like major in the industry. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, we, we, we we're sitting around the house one day and I start this song, you know, and he does a piece of poetry to it. Then I do the second verse of the song. He does another piece of poetry to it. And we do it that night and boom. Can I sing a little bit of it? Sure. You I don't know how the fuck you remember all this, but yeah, of course. Yeah, go for it. Melody, sweet melody, sweet, sweet melody. Melody, sweet melody, sweet, sweet melody. Melody, needy and 17. She met a boy. Gyrel Joy, he turned around, he turned around, he turned her into his personal love boy. And now she works the straight Sunset Boulevard. He says the money's good, she says the work is hard. Then he would do a piece of poetry, then I'd do, um, Homeless, yes, hopeless, no. He earns his keep on his old Congo. He has no legs to walk, but what a voice to sing. He's known on Wilshire Boulevard as Mr. Melody. What what themes were you finding you would come back to? Because you talked before about all the stuff about unconditional love. But you're you're drawn to some dark twisted shit too, right? Yeah, you know yeah. I was talking to a friend of mine, Tim Tim Bello Senior. He's the playwright who won the yeah, yeah, yeah. competition. Sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he said the same thing. Jesus, <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I mean, I mean, God knows. I mean, that's a fucking rich subject matter. I mean, but. What was it that was drawn you to this? Why were you drawn to, to stuff like that? I think it I think it has so much to do with um my environment, you know, mm. growing up. It was um a constant, you know, I, I grew up I mean, it was seven miles of Southfield, but it was definitely the hood. Mm-hmm. You know, you heard about people dying all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, it was different stories of like, you know. I know about this girl that that beat up this pimp, you know, about her sister. You know? It's like it was like it was in a lot of in a lot of ways it was a lot going on, you know. And but then at the same time, you know, we was always having fun, you know, like we playing yeah. baseball in the street and frisbee. So I mean, it was kind of like you know, you kind of take those images and put them together, 
you know, because it's kind of like, you know, there's all layers to this, to this thing, right? I mean, it's, there's all layers to this thing. So, I mean, I think maybe the artistic element is, is the synthesis of, you know, what those images mean to you and how you convey mm -hmm. them back, you know. Did you find yourself getting drawn to, uh, to that kind of stuff when you left Detroit too? Is that I, I think I think I think and this this is a this is a big part of the way I feel. I feel that uh it's not so much what I'm drawn to, it's what I'm attracting. I think well, it's a lot of distraction. Yeah. I think I think the thing was, and I think this is a major element to uh the black bullet dichotomy, is just basically what's on your mind is what's going on in your life. You know, there's yeah. two ways to tell what your vibration is, the way you feel and what's showing up in your life. You know, I mean, it's 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 really easy to say it's them, but you know, it's really you. There is, I think, a lot of truth and wisdom to that. How did you feel about that? Were you well, happy I, with it was a tractor? Were you was, like, was I realized, I like, oh man, my thoughts control my life. <laughs> like, oh God, my thoughts control my life. Then yeah. I, I started meditating. So like I have a three, four hour meditation schedule every day now. Holy shit. And, it, and it's like, oh man, it's not meditating to get anywhere. It's meditating for the state of non-resistance. You know, it's meditating to go into deep writing. It's meditating to, uh, to go into a state uh, being able to uh, to articulate a positive message, you know. Do you write every day? Every single solitary day, at least three to four hours a day. So is your is your kind of battle rhythm that you go, you meditate, and then you write? You're kind right, of teed right. up and ready to write, right? I, I you know, I, yeah. My 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 schedule is, you know, at the night before, I do a meditation, and I you know, I write down the questions. That I, you know, to see to see what my dreams can work out, you know, mm -hmm. get while in there. And then I wake up in the morning. The first thing I do is I meditate, and then I, you know, listen to some positive, you know, affirmations. Mm -hmm. Then I go, you know, I take my shower, and then I'm always got, you know, got positive songs playing, and I'm singing in the shower. Man, it's, it's a whole deal, dude. It's a whole deal. Well, no, but that's right. I mean, it should be. It should be something a methodology that you've worked out. You know what works for you. And you know what has to get you to the right headspace to do your work. I think that's just wise. That's just experience. And it's also so LA. No, I'm just kidding. But it, is. <laughs> but it, it does happen. LA can do that to you. It can make it can make you have to think about a lot of that stuff. And that's not always a bad thing. What what prompted you to leave LA? It was a time when uh, you know, I, I think it was more about um finances than anything. Yeah. Course. Not really, you know, not really solvent as an artist and um, not really taking advantage of all the opportunities that were around me. Because, I mean, people knew what I did. And, uh, you know, it was, I mean, there were so many other elements to I mean, I, I mean, I couldn't tell you everything, but it's basically it boiled down to not being capable of here it is having an avoidant mentality as opposed to. Uh, seeking out what I want, trying to stay away from things I don't want and get what I need, as opposed to going for what I want and getting it. Uh huh. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. When you talk about, so it seems like both in New York and LA, you talked about there were opportunities that were open to you that you didn't weren't taking full advantage of. Why do you think that was? Because you were busy trying to keep stuff away, some stuff right, at arm's trying, length, trying to and keep it takes stuff up bandwidth, away. right? Trying to, uh, yeah, 
mm, you know, uh, trying to protect, trying to tell myself that I was trying to do it, but at the same time, not pursuing certain avenues that would have led right to it, you know, for fear of, you know, encountering uh, resistance and, you know, all of the resistance was right there in my head, you know what I mean? Yeah, but you couldn't tell me that, you know, it's like, I can't tell some people that now, some young people I work with now, I'm like, you know, it's all in your head and they're like, you know, no, you don't understand. I'm like to myself, <laughs> yeah, believe me, I understand. But at the same time, it's very, very real when it's real. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, yeah, I, that's it, right. It's paper mache, but damn, it looked like brick. Right. That's that's a fucking David Stamps way of putting it. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly right. When you left LA, where'd you go after you left LA? I came back to Detroit. And how and was, was it? LA. I went from LA to San Francisco. Then from San Francisco, I came to Detroit. How long were you in San Francisco for? About eighteen months. How was that? Now up here in the north, uh, north end. Well, you know, it was, it was a situation where um, I found a place to stay, absolutely free in Knob Hill. Okay. So uh, I was, I don't know San Francisco well. What's not? Is Knob Hill nice? Knob Hill is nice? a nice area. Oh, really? Okay. All right. right above the Tenderloin. Okay. You don't know San Francisco, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't know San Francisco at all. Yeah. The whole story behind that and everything, but. <laughs> So uh, uh, I stayed in Knob Hill for like a year and I moved down into uh, the uh, downtown market, not downtown area, the market area, I think it's Okay, called. all right. I stayed there another six months, then I moved to Detroit. What was it like being in San Francisco? Did, did you find it energizing? Did you find it creative to be there? People have had, I know people have had different experiences in San Francisco. What was it like for you? What was your takeaway from your time there? It was not the best time that I had in my life. I'm seeing, I'm seeing the pattern. We can go deep on some stuff and there is some stuff that we are just going to leave on the table. And I got you. That happens. But you know what? We'll come back again because I have to... Can I at least tell some of my news now, Chris? No, not yet. Hold on a second. We're going to get there. I still, I'm just getting you out of San Francisco. We, have, we barely left San Francisco. Hold on. We'll get there. So when you come back to Detroit, now you're coming home again. And what is that like? Because now you've gone to all these different places. You've had all these different experiences, good, bad, and ugly. And now you're back in Detroit. You're in a good place. You're in a bad place. You feel like you're home again. Do you feel like, holy shit, this is beneath me and I'm back here again? Like, where, where are you at? Where's your head at when you're back in Detroit? I'm like uh, not enjoying my time here either. Mm. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, I'm making some really stark realizations about, you know, why I'm here now. Mm. All of a sudden, you know, it's like things are becoming very clear. And it's like my writing, my writing is getting much, much better. I'm, this whole time I'm writing. I'm writing. Every day? Every day you were writing? Not every day, but like uh, two, three times a week, whenever I can get a mm-hmm. chance. Mm-hmm. Even if I'm writing in a completely different spiral about a script that I that that's somewhere packed away somewhere, I'm writing. And is so, it scripts or is it poetry or is it both? It's, it, it's scripts, it's poetry, it's songs, mm-hmm. okay. stories, okay. you know, all of these things, just whatever is going on, you know. So um when I get to Detroit, I'm realizing that my voice is becoming clearer and mm-hmm. that now I have something to say. You know, and I always had something to say, but now I can again articulate. Yeah. So uh, now I'm wanting to get to a place 
where I can really write now. Now I feel like, you know, if I could just get to a place where, you know, I can I can write all day and just, you know, do what I need to do, I'll be all right. And, you know, a lot of people are telling me, you know, you do what you need, you know, you need to get a job, you need to do this, you need to do that. But I'm saying to myself, you know, I want to, this is my job to write, you know. And that was a, that was a tough decision to make because it meant that, you know, I had to, really focus on trying to generate money creatively. Yeah. yeah. Fucking truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and especially now that you're in Detroit, that's a really tall mountain to climb. Because where do you what's your outlet? What do you, you know, so I mean for you, what was that like? I mean, what what was your path to do that from Detroit? Well, so there was no path, so I moved to New York. Okay. All right, got you. <clears throat> so then you come to New York and now that you're back in New York, do you feel different? Now that you're back, then you're back in New York. Different because yeah. now this time I know what I'm doing. You know, I, I, you know, there's a couple of things I've done. I've got my body in shape. Uh, I'm, uh, I have my, 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 my plan. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do my poetry and I'm gonna uh, pedal these scripts. That's what I'm gonna do. Uh, shit, here I come. So I go and uh, when I go here, I, I'm, I'm a veteran, so I go to the domiciliary in St. Albans. Wait, we how the fuck did we skip over that? So wait, when did you get? When did you go into the military? Tell me about that. When when was that? How did I miss that? Well, this is a military project. I know, I know, but I, now I'm realizing. I'm like, hold on, we were, I was taking you from city to city. Where the fuck? When, when did the military come into play? I I joined the military when I was 17. My mother had to sign. I, I went. I did my whole tour of duty in Las Vegas, Nevada. Nellis. I was an aerospace controller, warning systems operator, a scope dope. And how what was that? Was it like a four year stint, three year stint? What, what was that like? It was only two years. Two years. Did you? Oh, so, oh, so, okay, hold on. Now we got back the fuck up. All right. So, when you're in Vegas, I mean, fuck. Okay. That's a place you got to think of a lot of things at arm's length, too. What was that like for you in Vegas, in Nellis? In Vegas, I was in, I was on the performance troupe at Vegas, so I would sing and dance. <laughs> oh yes, it was fabulous. What did uh, you think of the military, though, in general? I mean, that's I a pretty hard I, gear I, shift. The time I was performing, I was singing and dancing, and yeah. and it fooled you because it made you think. No matter what you did, you could always make money performing, performing and dancing, right? You're always like people, yeah, you know, I was, I was in, I was in everything, you know, talent yeah. shows, yeah, everything. Um, did you ever, did you think about staying in? Did you think about doing more than two years? It was never a thought in my head. Why? Because even though I was having fun singing and dancing, I did not like the uh, regimented lifestyle. I bet you didn't. I can only imagine. There were problems. Were there? Were you in trouble all the time? You were in trouble all the time, weren't you? Quite a you? bit. Quite a bit. <laughs> I could tell you stories. I bet you could. Well, you're supposed to. This is a fucking story show, but you're depriving me of all the juicy stuff, which I totally get. But I'm, I, I love you anyway, but it is fucking funny. I wrote um, a rap. I wrote a rap when I was in the Air Force. Yeah? And you know for it the, still, don't you? Whole, in basic training, we all sang it together. I gave him all different parts in it, and we and we did it for, for our, our TI, and he loved it. <laughs> it was called the gi rap do you remember it I, do you think i don't I, I i i it was just go for it if you remember i want to hear it the gi rap black boots green cap i'm in boot camp for six weeks i'm losing track of time 
I'm losing my mind. Reporting statement every time I speak. When we got off the bus, he looked at us with blazing eyes of red. And in the green uniform, he led us to the dorm with a funny hat on his head. And he looked in my face with pure he looked in my face with pure disgrace and a glaze in his eye. And I thought to myself, well, oh Lord help me, this must be my TI. Ha ha the G I Black Boots Green Cap. I've been boot camp for six weeks. I'm losing track of time. I'm losing my mind. Reporting statement every time I speak. <clears throat> <laughs> well, maybe I was wrong. My recruiter had lied, or maybe it was just the fluke. But I lost all doubt when he turned around and said, Look, here's a billion puke. He said, Your boots aren't shine. What's wrong with your mind? You think this is all in fun? He said, You think you're a man? Then he held out his hand. He said, Give me a 341. <laughs> That's fucking ridiculous. That you know that word by word still. That's fucking insane. Um, and first off, first off, I got I everyone listening is now shaking their heads, wondering exactly how lax Air Force Basic must have been if you're con- if you're able to dream all that up and write that down and script it that well during basic oh, training. I, I, but the Air Force Basic training is a cakewalk. <laughs> it is a cakewalk. It, it, it didn't do itself but any it favors. I can't say what it is now, but it was it. <laughs> um, that's so. I mean, okay, so I get it. So this is. So I, I can peg you in the Air Force. I see exactly where, where you're at with that. What did you think of your job? What did you think of the skill set you were learning where suddenly you're being, you're having all these, you know, pretty high level skills thrust on you? Did that mean something to you? Did, was that something where you were like, hey, if I ever needed a money job, I've got some skills I can fall back on? Or was that never even a thought in your mind? Yeah, you know, there was a time when I was thinking that, you know, I could do air traffic control, mm-hmm. you know, but that was during the time when Reagan did that whole firing thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of air traffic control. So sure. the skies were not really cool and the air traffic control thing was just not, not, not a cool thing to really do. So um, I had decided instead that I would, you know, and then it all came back to wanting to do my creativity. You know, that was always a big thing with me. And so it kind of, you know, just kind of like, you know, gotcha. Yep. Yeah. It was an itch. You had to scratch. I get it. Okay. So now you're, now you're in New York and where, so sorry, you were saying you, you went to the VA. Is that where you went? I went to the domiciliary. Oh, I don't even know what the fuck that is. What's the domiciliary? Okay, So the domiciliary is a, a place on the, um, on the, uh, base, uh, for veterans who may have housing problems or, you know, mm, you okay. have certain issues like you may have, you know, you may be homeless, you may you may have mm-hmm. a drug issue, you may have a health issue, mm-hmm. you know, some situation, and it's a it's a three month situation where you you have a place to stay, you get counseling, and you get, and then they help you find housing. And it's on base. It's it's, it's on the St. Albans VA campus. I don't know if it's still wow. there, but it's down wow. there. It was at one wow. So when I got there. I, um, uh, you know, after I did my stint, uh, they introduced me to a wonderful lady named retired, uh, retired major Sharon Lindsay. And she had started a, a house for veterans who were transitioning from the domiciliary to, you know, to housing. She would be the in-between place. I hesitate to say halfway house because right. it wasn't that, 
but it was temporary housing. And from there, retired Major Sharon Sweeting Lindsay is also very strong in the uh, Southeast Queens uh, veteran and uh, political community. Gotcha. So through gotcha. her, I became the artist in residence for Senator Leroy Comrie's Veterans Advisory Committee. And I've been doing that for the last five years. What does that entail? What do you do for that? Well, I, I perform uh, poetry on the senator's behalf. I perform at different events that are veteran events. Uh, uh, I, you know, I volunteer uh, at pantries, uh, you know, things of this nature. Gotcha. What do you think of that? Do you, is, is it rewarding to you? Is it great to always have somebody asking for your stuff? Yeah. It's, you know, I get to perform, you know, yeah. that first thing. And then, you know, I get to be around these veterans and, you know, you get to talk, you know, you, you get to share these stories and, you know, yeah. it's always fun, you know, to sit and put a, yes, I'm, I'm telling you, three veterans and two packs of menthol cigarettes and, and a jug of coffee. Jesus Christ, what you, you got a show, you know? <laughs> So it's like, you know, that you know, that was, you know, that was real cool. That's always cool to to interact with the veteran community. And then, you know, she provided, you know, a lot of all she's providing a space for the immersive experience. We discussed that as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You never left New York again after you moved back, right? Haven't, haven't left. So you enjoyed it? Yeah, I would say more than I enjoyed it. I, I think it was uh definitely a place where everything I needed creatively could be mm -hmm. found. Mm -hmm. Whether it was theater or the film mm -hmm. industry or mm -hmm. or the music industry, you know, just sort of everything. I mean, with the internet, I mean, God knows you can do it from anywhere now. Right. But Eleven years ago, the internet was maybe at a different phase, and you know, even though these opportunities were there, they were not so so clear and so much going after the the uh, this artist that they want to you know sell this. Um, you know, I don't know what the, what do they want to say you a, a podcast class or. Sure. Yeah. yeah all that stuff yeah um what, the community that you found yourself in what what community did you start to feel most at home with to make new york your home uh i would have to say it was the artist community and the lgbt community i would say more uh the lgbt community the lgbt artist community because when i started when i performed when i um volunteered at the uh, Fresh Fruit Festival at the Wild Project is where I met Louis Lepardi. Louis Lepardi is uh, the creative, the executive director of All Arts, All Out Arts. Okay. Shout out to Louis Lepardi. Uh, he he uh, helped me fine tune the Black Bullet dichotomy. He hired me to uh, to be a vo was a volunteer, but I got paid at the uh, Fresh Fruit Festival. I met so many playwrights and poets. And uh, and from there, we developed a relationship. He helped me fine tune the black bullet dichotomy. You know, there were different correspondence as the, as the process has gone along. And, you know, when somebody, you know, somebody say something to you, you know, you want to mm -hmm. you want to write them an ugly letter. You call Lewis Lewis says, no, send me the letter first, David. <laughs> and then let me tell you not to send that damn letter. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Things like that. That's incredibly yeah. valuable. Do you think do you think Black Bullet Dichotomy is the culminating work of your life at this point? Do you I think would say it's my life. life. Yeah. Now, it, uh, I see. I hesitated to use that phrase because theoretically, your life's not going to end when the play goes up, and there's going to be more stuff to say and write after that, right? Right. But so when I say my life's work, I would say that uh, it's the first piece that is completely ready. 
to be yes. put out here that really represents what I feel and would like to share. And then when I say my life's work, I mean yep. uh, talking about unconditional love in a way that's both accessible and moving. When did you start working on it? When I was 28 years old. Get the fuck out of here. Where, when you look at it now versus where it was then, is it completely 180 degrees different? I wouldn't say it's 180 degrees different. I would say that it has developed in the direction, uh, in a in a direction that was in there, but that mm-hmm. was not uh, fully developed. And mm-hmm. I could not have written it. It was such a um, ambitious piece, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. It really showed, you know, just how much hooks were. <laughs> I had to even try it, you know, because it's like so far beyond me at that point. But the artist that I had to become to write it was such an exciting journey. How much of the original is still in the Black Bullet dichotomy? Every word of the original. Well, 85 to 90 percent of all of the original portrait because it started out at 33 pages. Okay, so So, it's all in there. It just got a lot more. Got a lot more. Mm -hmm. It's fine. And then there were things that I didn't know yet. That were had to be a part of it for it to be what it is. Now. Sure, sure, sure. Um, okay, plug away. Shameless plug time. So I get so just so everybody's clear. I get voice messages or phone calls um, from David. What probably every two weeks, telling me about fifteen other things going on with Black Bullet Dichotomy. Uh, I have it, it's fucking ridiculous how much stuff is going on with this. So tell me about where it stands right now. What's going on with the project right now? Okay. So the Black Bullet Dichotomy got me invited to be an artist in residence at the Kennedy Center. Yeah, that doesn't suck. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I've decided to do it on March 1st, 2024, which is actually a day after the end of Black History Month. Mm-hmm. And what I want to do is an, what I'm going to do is an immersive experience as celebrity a celebrity cast multimedia experience. No, not a multimedia experience. Uh, an immersive experience mm-hmm. inside of the um, the, uh, the, uh, the the Kennedy Center, and it's going to be. And it's, it's it's in the. It's called the Reach Office Hours Residency. Okay. So what they're doing is they want you to place spatially, you know, spatial. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to do it in the space. And it's going to be an immersive experience. And so what we're doing now is I just talked to Wayne Lindsay. I think I told you about him a minute mm-hmm. ago. He's really well connected. He loves my work. He's going to get me the right producers because they they gave me $10,000 for the residency, mm-hmm. which is nothing to sneeze at. No. I want to do a $100,000 event. I want to add, I want to add, because uh, I want it to be, Wayne Lindsay is going to do the scoring of the music. Uh-huh. And be like this. This really awesome experience. I'm just so excited and I'm so appreciative of this opportunity to share this message. Wait, hold on a second. A hundred thousand dollar event? Stamps, they're gonna fucking assassinate you before then. There's no fucking so who's oh come on. You you're the you're the kind of artist, and this is and this is so you. It's because I know that brain, that you're that creativity that's just churning, and you're coming up for probably so much cool shit. Your producer's gonna hit you over the head with a polo mallet, though. Hundred thousand dollars. They're gonna be like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" I didn't dream, dude. But listen, well, the thing is, is that, and I, I I say it because it doesn't, it doesn't need that much. The 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 color 
the flair, I mean, having read it, it's on the page. It's on the page. It doesn't need, I mean, yes, sure. With more well, so money, when I say, everything, when I say plus I'm saying I would love to have Larry Fishburne play uh, the beloved shopkeeper. Well, see, he would fucking do it for free. Right. Okay. So now look at this. I, mm-hmm. I totally feel that. Yeah. But look, with that comes equity. With that comes uh, contracts. With that comes, I want it scored right. You know, I got the right choreographer, set mm-hmm. design. You know, I'm not saying it's going to cost a hundred thousand, but I they, somebody no, doing me, it right. Yes. Jeremy told me he said make a budget, but then make a dream budget. <laughs> no, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I just, you know, I, I don't want to see your your face on the back of milk cartons because they're like. He tried to put on a hundred thousand dollar event, and a bunch of producers started twirling their mustaches. And were like, "Son of a bitch!" No, we can't, we can't beat me up there with a music stand. <laughs> um, this is super exciting, though, man. Um, so you wanted to do it on March first, twenty twenty four. What the? What are you going to be doing between now and then? Well, so now the next thing I want to do is uh, um. The reading, the the reading at the Frank Severa workshop. So mm-hmm. I'm casting for that. Uh, going into rehearsals. Uh, going to um, I'm going to fund. You know, I'm going to you know add some money to the budget for that for that, so that we can get what we need. Then after that, uh, we're going to, um, we're going to do the fundraising. You know, because I have this this crowdfunding campaign I want to do with the T-shirt and the uh, the latest version of the Nightmare. And uh, uh, a signature on my Instagram page for hundred bucks. You're out. You're on fucking fire. You're on fire. Um, hey, David, tell everybody. Um, tell everybody how they need to reach out to you, follow you, keep track of this, keep track, follow the project, follow what you're up to. What what do, what do people need to know? Okay, Where well, they, you, you social my, all that. Okay, you can go to my web website at www.spokenworld, S-P-O-K-E-N-W-O-R-L-D.xyz. You can email me at scribe, S-C-R-I-B-E, stamps at yahoo.com. Should I say that again? S is in Sam, sure. C is in car, R is in robot, I is in intelligent, B is in ball, E is an elephant. Stamps like postage stamps. Scribe stamps at yahoo.com. Was that an excuse just so you could show off your own kind of uh, military phonetic there? Your, your poetry, <laughs> yes, poetic no twist on yes, it. Don't tell her how deep it goes. Chris. <laughs> don't tell her how deep it goes. Hey, um, this has been so fun, man. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm excited for you. You're fucking getting after it, and I know it's been a long journey. Um, yeah, thanks for sitting down and talking with this. And at some point, motherfucker, you're coming back on here and we're going to fucking pry into more shit. But, <laughs> but, uh, but honestly, it, I'm, thank you for sharing what you did and talking about it. Um, I know it's, I know it's, you know, not always the most fun thing to go back and do forensics on your life, but you know, fuck with the, the kind of material you churn out. You can't help but ask the questions. And well, um, thank you I so much, Chris. And I, I, I'm honored to be on your show, and I would love to come back again before the event and talk about it more in detail. That might be crazy enough to make God sense. God bless you, brother. Peace and blessings. That was the savage wonder of the one and only David Stamps. Oh my lord, what a roller coaster ride! <laughs> I wish you guys could have seen. At some point, maybe we'll do. We'll actually film these and and broadcast the video but i wish you guys could have seen uh david's face during the interview uh 
the wheels, when you're talking to him, the wheels are turning all the time to as he tries to find the mo, mo just as he tries to find exactly the right poetic spin to put on every word of each of his answers. And I was like, uh, I, I wouldn't have expected any less. It was not surprising, but it was funny. And uh, yeah, he's a fucking madman. It's it's fucking great to watch. Anyway, uh, and just a natural entertainer. I mean, you should see uh, you should see stamps in a room. I mean, that dude is the most gregarious son of a bitch out there. Just you know, full of energy and everything. And um, you know, I uh, you guys now have heard like how he pulled his punches on some of the stories and some things he didn't want to you know rabbit holes he didn't want to go down and all that. Um, and you know when this Kennedy Center thing happens, uh, you know we'll, it would be good to tee that up and, and have him back on and talk. And the reason, I mean, not just because I'd love to get the full story for for my own edification, but also um, I, I think there's probably with the life David's lived, I think there's probably a lot of lessons there that probably a lot of us can relate to and learn from. I think there's a lot of lessons learned. So uh, you know, next time it comes on, I'm gonna tell him. We're going for the juggler, and he's got to open up. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't have to, but it's it's uh, you know he's an interesting guy, and I think I think his experience is worth sharing. And the more of his experience we can understand, probably that's to everyone's benefit when he's ready, though. Okay, um, that is all that. Um, yeah, glad we could have David on. Okay, so now. VetRep, go to VETREP.org, VetRep.org, VetRep.org for any and everything you may want to know about Veterans Repertory Theater. Um, We have a bunch of things going on. We have acting classes that we're about to start. We have playwriting classes that we're about to start. And we have a public reading that you can come to. So in inverse order, our public reading, February 25th, which is a Saturday, at the Highland Falls American Legion Post 633. Um, they are sponsoring this reading, so we're going to do a little bit of a fundraiser for them too because uh, they could use it, to be perfectly frank. They're outgunned, undermanned, under-resourced. And, um, you know, aren't we all in the nonprofit space? But um, they are in a, in a way that uh, and they were kind enough to sponsor this reading. So uh, we'd like to help them out and do some fundraising for them. But uh, we will be doing a reading of Philip Korth's new play, War Wound. Uh, I, I have not talked to Phil in depth about the play, but I think it's safe to say it is a somewhat, maybe more than somewhat, autobiographical account of a Marine infantry unit in Kuwait uh, at the, on the cusp of the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And then it actually moves into Iraq. Anyway, um, really moving, uh, important piece of work. I would love to hear it out loud for the first time. So, you know, it'll be professionally cast. We'll have the cast up there and we'll do the show at the American Legion. And the reason we're doing it up there is because we really wanted a uh, veteran heavy audience. We're going to have a feedback session after Q&A. So um, after the, the reading, um, we want to hear from everybody, get their impressions of what they thought of the piece. So I look forward to that um, a lot. That's going to be very cool. Tickets are free. Um, so you can go to vetrep.org, go to our Now Playing tab. You can get tickets for free. And uh, you will be solicited incessantly throughout the night. 
uh, on behalf of the American Legion, but uh, but you're certainly welcome to come see the show for free. Okay, there's that. Now, we are starting acting classes. The acting classes are for our community, both the veteran community and the local Hudson Valley community. Um, it's the kind of thing we'd love to do every week. We'll see if we get there. We're just starting off with once a month. Um, and I'm looking forward to doing them. Uh, people have bugged us for a while about, do we do any community theater? We don't. Um, but this is might be a nice way to start nosing our way into that and uh, see what talent is local and you know what fun things can develop from there. So it'll be uh, very heavy on comedic improv and we'll probably have some Stanislavski stuff, some Meisner stuff in there, um, but it'll be a really fun Saturday morning uh, on a monthly basis for right now. And uh, yeah, we'd love to see you guys out there. Uh, the tuition for that is 25 bucks a class. Bear in mind, uh, as much as we're doing a helping out the American Legion since they helped us out, uh, we're a nonprofit that needs the money also. So helps us a lot. Uh, if you're a veteran, though, and you would like to take that class, reach out to us because we do have scholarships available for veterans. Um, and that can be a workaround for that fee. So there's that. That's the acting class. And then uh, we also have beginning playwriting. This is for veterans only. So the acting class is open to anybody 18 or over. Uh, they can show up in person. But the playwriting class is for veterans only. Again, it's an in-person class uh, here at Vet Reps Parlor in Cornwall, New York. And that um, it's $50 a spot. But uh, veterans, reach out to me. We can find workarounds uh, for that. I think there's scholarships and sponsorships that we may be able to get you. And by may, I say it's pretty much done, but, you know, reach out. Um, don't want to promise anything in the ad, but we got really good, really good odds of helping you out. So um, those are our playwriting classes. Uh, this is all starting, uh, you know, end of February, early March. So check out vetrep.org. You'll see all the dates, all the details, um, and reach out to us with any and all questions about the classes. That's really the biggest three things to talk about. We do have Savage Wonderground coming back to Alexandria, Virginia on April 13th. More details on that shortly, but um, keep your ears open for that as well. All right. I need to thank our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of Veterans Repertory Theater. See you next time when we talk to another veteran or immediate family member of a veteran about their own personal, unique Savage wonder.